Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome J. Kim McNutt to our show. Mr. McNutt is the Dean of the College of Continuing and Professional Education at California State University, Dominguez Hills in Carson, California. Hi, Kim. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Well, Dave, thank you so much. I've actually been looking forward to this for quite some time. I know we had to reschedule because of uh, schedule changes, but I've, this is uh, very fun to me. I love talking about what we do and particularly in the higher ed space and a little bit about the post-pandemic or the new endemic, I guess, is what we're in now. But yeah. thank you for the opportunity. Oh, great. Well, tell me first about Cal State Dominguez Hills and why students select both your institution and your college. Great questions. I'm in my ninth year uh, starting in July here, and, and I really love what I'm doing. I've been in higher ed 30 years now. I've worked at six different institutions, uh, two private universities and the rest state. I've uh, been in California before. I've been in Texas twice. I was in Arizona. And then in my home state of New Mexico, I got my higher ed career at my, uh, my home institution of New Mexico State. So fast forward to uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills, uh, what was attractive to me, I'm not from California, but I had always aspired to at least work part of my life uh, here. I spent two years in the Bay Area working at the California Maritime Academy in a similar role, and then went to Texas and then wanted to come back to California. But what really intrigued me about what we're doing here, um, Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, we're in the LA Basin area. We're about 15 miles due south of downtown Los Angeles, so we're a, an urban campus. We serve primarily first-generation college students, which I, I love our mission, and mostly people of color. Um, we're adjacent to the Compton and Watts area here in Carson. And it's hard to see, but where the sun is uh, setting just to my west, and that's my office's complex is right behind me. So that's my registration building. We have classrooms and then my office where I'm currently in. If anybody are soccer fans, it's home to the Los Angeles Galaxy uh, soccer team. So I can literally throw a rock uh, from my office window and hit the hit the stadium. But the attraction here was just that. Um, I'm a first generation college graduate myself. Uh, my parents came from modest means, but they always believed in higher education and they gave my sister and I an opportunity. They said, look, uh, you wanna go to college, uh, we'll help you with tuition and books, but if you wanna live on campus or join clubs or, or get an apartment, that's on you. And so I always appreciated uh, that entry there because I see those types of students uh, here every day. Uh, like I said, the students that come to CSUDH are primarily people of color. Um, a lot of them come from very um, difficult, challenging social and economic backgrounds. But I love the mission that we serve. It's, it's a very caring campus. Uh, we hear that a lot from students. We have about 15,000 headcount at the university. And my particular college in pivoting, what we like to do, and this is what's interesting to me about the CSU, there are 23 CSUs in the state of California, and there are 23 deans uh, just like me of continuing ed. And what I love about what we do is we receive no state support. We receive no state funding from Governor Newsom, uh, the chancellor's office over in Long Beach, or my campus president. And you're probably, your listeners and viewers are probably wondering, well, how do they, how do they thrive? Well, we're a complete self-support college, and that means that students choose to take courses through us. So they take courses at winter break, spring break, and summer, 
and then I offer the courses and then I pay the faculty to teach. And then I share some of that revenue back with the academic colleges and then I get to keep a portion. And then we actually have various campus partner programs, various um, academic degree programs that I also partner with, with the other academic colleges. For instance, the uh, College of Business will offer an on-ground MBA. I can do the online piece. I can do everything that not in the same format, but I can do the counter. So anything that's face-to-face, -face, I can offer in an online modality. And then the third leg of the stool, in addition to the degree programs at the master's level, and we have several undergraduate degree completion programs as well, all online. Again, in the, in the facility that I work at, we have 11 classrooms and an auditorium. So we do a lot of non-credit certificate programs for working professionals. For instance, human resource management, construction management, project management, meeting and event planning, uh, digital marketing. We have a, uh, a HALO program, I like to call it. It's OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health. We're one of only 26 um, Department of Labor certified uh, OSHA training institute education centers in the nation. So we do a lot of OSHA training for folks uh, here as well. And then um, again, as a self-support college, people pay uh, to come and, and uh, take these courses. And then I pay our staff out of that. I pay the utilities. I pay electricity. We invest in new hires. I invest in new programs. And then some of that money I do return back to the university. So it's like running a small educational enterprise. Um, I always jokingly say I'd rather invest in new programs that meet the needs of our audience because I can't go out and buy a new Porsche 911 or a new you know, Ford F-150 pickup truck. And so I love that. I also call us, Dave, the... Uh, the entrepreneurial arm of the university, because we can try new things and incubate them. And then once they're successful, I can spin them off back to stateside. So I, I refer to it as stateside, which receives state supported dollars plus tuition, and then my self-support. And then I also call us the test kitchen of the university because we're the idea where we can come up and cook up new recipes and new courses and new, new offerings and new ways to deliver courses, whether it's hybrid, or a condensed cycle. Um, again, I, I just love what we do. We have a staff of 45 program managers, developers, uh, registration staff, marketing, business officers, associate dean. And um, again, it's just like running a small business, but it's meeting a need to help people uh, go out and get a new job, get a better job, or get a promotion. So when did that, when did, when did you say that college started? The, before I became a college in 2004, and we'll talk about the name change in a moment, but um, the state of California has always had, and, and most universities do have extension schools. You know, we've heard the term extension or extended ed that helps serve a night schools. Remember the old night school mm -hmm. concept of um, adult basic education or earning a GED? And so we've had uh, continuing ed in this college uh, since the late 70s in, one, in various forms or shapes. And then over time of the various leadership in the college, uh, she changed it. The former dean that was here about 25 years took this from an, a non-credit um, and academic program as more of a, of a unit, an extension unit, and then became a full-fledged college in 2004. And that name, as you and I talked briefly before coming online, it was the College of uh, Extended and International Education. And we used to house... Uh, for many, many years, all international programs, meaning folks that wanted to come to Southern California from Brazil, India, China, wherever, Mexico, uh, Germany, Japan, 
And then we have some staff that would be serve as recruiters and admissions officers and help these students navigate the barriers and then get them into the university. And then we also ran uh, an American language and culture program, which is very similar to ESL, English as second language programs that a lot of universities have. And so my college ran that program for many, many years. But um, again, being a self-support college, we weren't receiving any of the tuition dollars to come back in and fund all these positions. So basically my college was subsidizing that, that unit. And so in conversations with the provost and president and other stakeholders, I said, you know, it's just, it's a great program. We're bringing students here, but it's just not a good fit for my college. And so over the last year, we've been working to not only change the name, but there's a lot of back office machinations to, you just can't flip a switch and change the name of your school. There's a lot of things that go on. And we checked all the boxes and complied with all the requests and the name change was uh, floated to the community, the faculty, the staff, everyone agreed with the name change. Uh, the International Education Unit is now reporting to stateside. And we went with this new name change as just recently as you pointed out this past August where we are now the College of Continuing and Professional Education, which really fits more to the mission that we do uh, here at CSUDH. Well, just uh, for my two cents, I sure understand what your college is about now. That's for sure. So, so thanks for well, thanks for thanks for clarifying. I also like to say, and no, it's hard to interrupt you, but I get so excited talking about what we do, and I want to thank you again for the the opportunity. Uh, for visual sake, I always like to hold up my iPhone and say, my college is also the iPhone of higher ed because, as you know, the iPhone contains everything you need. It is your cell phone, it is your camera, it is your music device, it's your calendar, it's your GPS, it's your voicemail, it's, it's about 50 different things at least. Uh, it's your gaming console, it's when you go to the airlines, you know, it's your e-ticket. Well, that's what my college is. We have proudly 50 different programs, whether again, whether it's a degree program, a graduate degree, training programs. So I say, look, whatever you need at whatever phase you are in your career or your life, you can get it from us. And I even have programs for senior citizens. It's called the um, Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, Ollie for short. And it's community ed programs for folks that wanna to continue to learn beyond retirement. Uh, we charge very low fees for those programs as a service to the community. Uh, we got them a discount in parking. I offer a lot of my classroom space for free to them. We charge a very nominal fee for, um, for uh, admission into these programs. And it's, it's fantastic. And I have two folks, Dave, two students, uh, two older ladies that are 95 and 94 years old that still come to classes. And even during COVID, they were engaged in the online. We all had to move to Zoom. But as we started repopulating campus, uh, they were so excited to come back. And so I call that uh, K through 100 education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I could see myself doing that after retire, you know, I've been retired now for about two years and I'm just starting for an example, I'm just now getting into roasting coffee beans, you know, so I'm starting to do that. And you just, and so for whatever older adults need, they're going to still always be lifelong learners. And you go, gosh, I wish I could go someplace to learn, you know, this one specific thing to do. So. Great point. And, you know, we actually are very engaged again with uh, the main campus. And so we invite a lot of faculty and uh, leadership like yourself to come back and give lectures yeah. on topics of whatever your background is in. Right. We say, hey, why don't you come and talk for 45 minutes about world politics or the economy yeah. or the pandemic? 
And, uh, but then there were also community ed courses. Uh, we have like Tai Chi for uh, the elderly. Yeah. We have, there's one afternoon that they bring just board games uh, and just play board games. But uh, there is still an intellectual component because we do try to uh, get them to think and right. exercise critical thinking and ask, ask questions. But we bring in a lot of faculty or folks from uh, campus and the surrounding area to talk about relative uh, relevant uh, topics of the day. Yeah, what what a what a great idea, and I agree. Is I, I just assumed, you know, you, you if you've ever if you have the university's just right down the street, you just kind of want to go there to go. Hey, what other things can I do at fifty or sixty or seventy? So I I love that idea. Really, really neat idea, Kim. I appreciate that, and again, it's now that's one of the programs that most of my programs have to uh, at a minimum pay for themselves. But that's a give back to the community from my perspective. We have a person that works part-time at coordinating them. As I said, I charge very little, if anything, or nothing for the use of our classrooms um, because it's, it brings me such joy to see the happiness on these folks' faces when they come in. And then the fellowship, you know, they get together and they're listening to a lecture. We had a big Juneteenth celebration in our auditorium last year where they brought food from the era and sang songs and talked about, uh, you know, Juneteenth and its impact. and um, it's just really cool to see that. And, and so I do that as a give back to the community, but it's, and they give back a lot too. When I ran international programs, a lot of these, they would, we would do like a mentoring program. And some of these, uh, our older members would pair up with some of the international students to kind of help them navigate campus or, Hey, this is where the grocery store is down the street, or this is where you go to the restaurant, or this is how you catch the bus to get, or the, the transit system to get to a Dodgers game. And you're, it's kind of cool to see the young and the old pair up and, and really learn from each other. Yeah. Is there any, do you see any transition from somebody coming in, just taking, you know, a, a class that wasn't a non-credit class or whatever, and all of a sudden they're taking like an Excel class or something like that because they learned that through you guys? Excellent point. Um, we get a lot of folks that come in and what I say, I like to call it a kicking the tire. So they'll come in and take a non-credit training program, like say it's an Excel spreadsheet class or a project management class. And they go, man, you know, that was pretty good. And then they start looking at our catalog and say, you know what, I, I didn't finish my degree. I, I took two years. I just need any degree. Do you have something like a, a liberal studies or an applied studies or an org leadership? Basically we said, yeah, I do. So it's a feeder program. Uh, and we see that a lot. People that'll come for an undergraduate experience and see the different uh, master's level degrees that we have for working professionals. And they'll say, wow, you know, I need, I need a systems engineering degree or I need an MPA. Uh, we're getting ready to launch uh, in tandem with our campus partner, a new master's in accounting. And we think there's a great need of an 18 month accelerated program. It's 30 hours, there's no thesis at the back end. And that's what professionals need. They don't need 36 hours and take a thesis and, and figure out all of that. They don't wanna be an academician. They, they want a job promotion. So most of our degrees designed for graduate uh, students are the uh, 10 course, 30 hours. Uh, we have a comprehensive exam for most of them at the back end that they would take. Now, some can do a thesis. There are some folks that say, look, I do want to be, get a, a PhD at some point in my career. And, um, but we find that's very few that come through my college. We're very near the aerospace industry here in, in Carson. Uh, there's the, all the old major military players, aerospace is nearby. So we get a lot of folks from those industries. Um, uh, SpaceX is just up the road. Um, Elon Musk, SpaceX, some of their folks come take classes from us at the master's level. But um, I really love that spot of workforce development is really what we're designed for. 
Gotcha. Well, what else is new at your college? Well, like I said, it's really a, a lot of fun. We're like I said, we've launched in my time here, and and if you recall. Uh, when you ran a college yourself, how Herculean of an effort it is to introduce and launch new degrees. Uh, so I'm very proud to say that we've launched in my eight years here, just starting my ninth, as I said, four new master's degree that are really relevant to uh, local industry. And one of the new things that I'm exploring, and I've been pushing this for some time, so I'm glad you asked, are this uh, digital credentials and badging. And by that, I mean, when people come in and take I've been piloting it with our non-credit offerings first. And so it's similar to what people call, well, they're saying you're, it's, you're, it's the gamification of education. Well, yes and no, but a quick example would be with my OSHA program, my uh, Occupational Safety and Health. There are six different certificates that we offer in that program. So a person would come in and finish a certain number of courses and get that certification. And then of course they would get an old fashioned paper uh, transcript, and I would hand sign their their um, certificate, and they'd hang it on their wall. But then later, they'd say, you know, what did I learn in that? And so uh, I see that I did satisfactory, or I got an A or a B. So I came up with this idea of, well, let's create badges for each of those different certificates. And it's an electronic badge. And once they are successful, they will receive that electronic badge so they can send it to an employer post it on LinkedIn, Instagram, but here's, here's what I love. You can click on the badge and then it opens up the metadata which shows you the course title, the learning outcomes, the student learning outcomes, things you will learn and get from this class. And what I also like is these are transportable that students can take these with them wherever they go. It's not just a piece of paper that you hang on a wall or you stick in a file. And so these electronic records, um, they can take and transport with them and what I, I didn't coin the phrase, but I like it. It's a comprehensive learner record or an e-portfolio. There's different names for it. But my goal is, again, to empower students over their 30, 40, 50 year working career to gather and gain these badges for different credit, non-credit training programs and keep them in a CLR, a comprehensive learning record, or more euphemistically, a digital backpack, right? Or a digital wallet, just like you have your Apple wallet in your iPhone where you keep electronic data that they can share with, again, uh, their social media and or employers. So now I can send to um, Lockheed Martin up in El Segundo. I say, look, I have these badges in various areas. And if you want to know what I've learned, click on each. And again, the, it opens up and it, it displays the metadata that shows you exactly um, what that person has learned. Because back in my day, and, and maybe yours too, I, I often joke when I got my uh, transcripts and my diploma, you know, it was on, almost like on sheepskin and I would get at it and I would look at it, you know, 40 years ago and say, wow, I got a, a B plus in uh, American history, but I don't remember anything else. You know, what did I learn from that? And yeah. so my goal is to empower students to be in charge of their own um, learning record and learning history that they can they can share with folks and make them, frankly, more uh, readily employable. Yeah, I, I really like that idea. Came up. Right off the bat, I'm thinking, so so a student who takes a non-credit class has has basically a digital record of, of what they've done. But on the same token, they could actually go to a college and say, let's talk about prior learning assessment and see if that'll transfer over to credit if I want to continue down some type of path in, in a higher education institution. Dave, you're spot on. I'm glad you brought that up. We're actually using that as well, too. The, the PLA 
uh, credit for prior learning. We have a lot of folks that come to us again through my college and say, wait a minute, I work in accounting uh, down the road. I work in an accounting house and I just don't have the undergraduate degree. Why do I need to take accounting 110 again? I do that all day long. So you're right, by, by issuing them some, and for them bringing to us um, a portfolio of their work, and we can assess that, and then we can convert that into a badge or some sort of credential that can show that they indeed can do that job, but you hit it right on the head. And what we're trying to do is encourage them to transfer, the, um, like you said, credit for prior learning, get transcripted college credit. And we're not talking dozens of units here. We're talking three, six, nine, 12 units, perhaps, that we could truly give them transcripted credit but then we can say, look, you don't have to take these four or five courses. Right. It's similar to clepping right. out or comping out, but you can apply them to this accounting degree. And guess what? That's four or five classes less. Absolutely. You have yep. to take. So you're, you're spot on with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about you for a minute. Um, tell me about the path that led you to become the dean of the College of Continuing and Professional Education. Again, a great question. And as I told you, my parents... Um, did not go to college and a lot of my cousins before me did not go and they had some of them had opportunities so I always loved the idea of of, of higher education I grew up uh, in Las Cruces New Mexico it's my hometown my my father still lives there plan to retire there someday it's we're about 30 miles 40 miles north of El Paso Texas just so people that might be familiar right on the cusp of I-10 and I-25 and um I went to school there that's where my folks said we will pay for you to go to the school in our hometown which I did and um, went to school, uh, loved it, graduated, but higher education wasn't my first choice. Uh, I actually got my degrees in journalism and mass communications. So before getting into this field, I actually was a television news reporter for nine years for two ABC affiliates. Oh, wow. <laughs> one in El Paso, Texas, and one in Albuquerque. Now, people are probably wondering, well, how in the world did you make that transition from that world to this world? Well, I had gone to a school with a classmate of mine who ended up going through and getting his uh, bachelor's, master's, and PhD in electrical engineering. And we had a campus TV station on our campus. It was a PBS station called KRWG-TV, and it was a great uh, learning lab for us. So I got hands-on experience working uh, camera equipment and editing equipment and lighting and sound and going out and covering stories. We even had a, a nightly student newscast. Well, my friend Jeff worked behind the scenes at the TV station, helping keep the lights on, but he was a student. Well, fast forward, I did that for nine years. He and I kept in touch. One day he calls me and says, Kim, he goes, um, I have an opportunity for you. I'm going to be starting and launching. I got this huge Department of Energy grant to start a satellite television delivery system of engineering courses nationwide. And he says, I'd like you to come work for me. And my first response was, uh, I don't know anything about higher ed. I don't know anything about teaching. Um, and I said, thanks, Jeff, but but no. And, and I turned him down and he said, all right, well, think about it. Well, I, I continued to do my job. And about a year later, he called me again and said, last chance. Uh, I'm building this uh, satellite delivery system on our campus. We're going to develop and deliver engineering courses. We're going to deliver them to Department of Energy sites across the country. This is in the early 90s. Um, it was after the nuclear a dividend when things were starting to wind down and scientists were trying to figure out what to do with all this waste. And so we had into, we had faculty in our campus that were developing courses um, that would help mitigate that. And it was a consortium of universities from uh, my university, 
uh, New Mexico Tech, which is similar to your background in Socorro, uh, mining and uh, it was a mining school. And then the other one was University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, which uh, had a lot of nuclear uh, faculty there. And we had the two labs behind this too, Los Alamos and Sandia. And they were helping us develop the curriculum. So finally I said, Jeff, I'm gonna give this a try. He says, he goes, Kim, the only thing I need you for is to help me make it pretty. You know, we'll build the studio. I'll help you. You'll work with faculty on sound and delivery. I was sort of the, the production side where he was handling the academic side. So I did that. That was my first uh, job in higher ed. I was a manager of an instructional TV program. And I did that for nine years. And that's where I truly fell in love with higher ed. And uh, I know I'm giving you the long story here, but that's what got me into it. After that, I hit a glass ceiling at NMSU. Couldn't go any higher and uh, didn't have advanced degrees outside of the bachelor's. And so I started looking around and uh, kind of like what you did, I wanted to have some progression. So I looked around and lo and behold, I applied for and got a, a job at Southern uh, Methodist University in Dallas. And I was running their distance education program there for the, the College of Engineering. Did that four or five years. Then from there went to, um, where did I go from there? Arizona State uh, for a short time, working at ASU, similar work. And it's so funny, Dave, because I'm not an engineer by trade, but the first three quarters of my career were all working in engineering schools <laughs> and in these different types of backgrounds. And then from ASU, I went to Cal Maritime Academy for two years in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco area. And then I went to San Antonio. I got recruited from a guy that I worked with at uh, SMU to that was my first stint of a broad continuing education program was at OLLU in, in San Antonio. And I oversaw offsite campuses in Houston, Texas, and also in uh, the Rio Grande Valley in Harlingen, Texas, which is very far south. So I would drive to the different locations. We did face-to-face -face programs there, but we also launched six uh, master's degrees online when I was there. Did that five years, as I mentioned, um, was doing broad continuing ed, and then got this gig here, the longtime dean retired, and then I applied for it and uh, got it. And I, this is, I truly love it here. I'm in my ninth year. And I think as you and I talked briefly, probably going to go the distance, you know, till I retire. Well, that's always good when you, uh, when you're ending the career, your career where you want to, where you want to be. So um, what's been your proudest moments at Cal State Dominguez Hills? Great question. Again, it's really um, launching new degree programs that meet um, workforce needs. That's been very proud, very, very hard work. And also piloting new um, industry-specific training programs, whether they be in IT to help people get upskilled and reskilled. And then the third thing is we talked earlier, I'm very passionate about the digital credentials and badging space. Um, we're, we're going all in on that. I've got a lot of support from um, after we piloted it, we're going to get adoption now by the main campus and start embedding these certificates and credentials to students in other areas. And it's perfect timing because, as you know, most of them have, all of them have grown up in the digital age and uh, they're really ad adapting and adopting that technology. And most of them are gamers, frankly. A lot of these kids are already gamers. And it's showing them that once they amass badges and the stackable credentials, which you've heard, um, they realize there's value. It's not just a game. It's like, right. But it also encourages them to advance. They're, it's a challenge. You know, hey, I've got these four or five credentials. I really want to get these two over here, stack them, as you pointed out, CPL, PLA. Um, I think it's that's why I hope my legacy will be here is how I would help folks and students see the value in that 
but empower them to capture <laughs> these credentials and be able to transfer them anywhere they go for the rest of their working career. Well, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an academic leader? Since you've been doing it for a while, to say the least, so. Great question. You probably encountered this too. Um, as I told you, I didn't come into higher ed right out of school. And I worked in a very fast paced industry. And, and it's a challenge at all six places I've worked at the unfortunate slow pace that things work within higher ed. You know, it moves at a, at a snail's pace. And I realized with um, shared governance and a lot of the issues there, faculty need to be involved and leadership and students have to be in staff. But sometimes things move too slow. And so that's been one of the challenges. And I've had to, I've, I move at a very fast clip. And sometimes a lot of people um, said, wait a minute, slow down a little bit. But I have a very uh, strong uh, encouragement and support from my provost and vice president for academic affairs. He, he realizes the importance of what we do. And frankly, uh, I, this is the day full with meetings today. And uh, I'm the only dean at CSUDH that sits on the president's cabinet. And the reason that's the case is, and it's, it's the president's VPs and the provost and, and a couple of other key stakeholders, but the provost saw the value in the future of what my college is doing. Meaning that we are really the, as I said, the, the force multiplier and the incubator of new uh, courses and programs. And so I'm proud to say that it's not the business dean, it's not the engineering dean, it's the dean of uh, continuing and professional education that sits on the president's cabinet. And I throw out these ideas and people, they scratch their chins and their, their head and go, you know what, that's a good idea. We should get into that. Because my feeling, Dave, we've seen the news with the demographic cliff, uh, enrollment numbers are down nationwide. Um, the future of higher ed is in colleges like this, uh, not just in California, but across the nation. I think universities that have strong forward-facing and um, community-facing continuing and professional education programs are going to thrive in this new era. Hmm. Well, what do you think will be the challenges you'll face over the next five to 10 years, specifically to your college? Specific to my college? That's a really good question. I said, we've been very adept at, at meeting the challenges. And again, even trying to get other folks to, to speed the cycle a little bit. But I worry too about momentum. I think sometimes... Um, like if the provost were to leave, and you've seen this elsewhere, right. you get a new person comes in and goes, well, Kim, that was great. That's what the other provost was wanting you to pursue. I think we need to go in that direction. And again, I've old enough to been around the block. Like you said, I've been at, at six institutions and, and 30 years in the industry, seen a lot of different environments, been through a lot of different things, worked with a lot of different personalities. So that's as long as I'm in this role, um, I'm going to continue to, to push the cause and the case for uh, nimble programming to meet the needs of the workforce, um, upskilling, reskilling, advanced degrees, and really emphasizing K through 100 education, that people should always be learning uh, over their entire career. Because, you know, academia is really linear. You know, you, you go to school, it's like an arc. You go to school, you graduate, you work 40 years, and you retire. The new model that I like, it should look more like a heart rate monitor, that once a person graduates, they should be interacting with their university in their town right. over their entire working career for, you know, get that master's degree, get that doctorate, continue to get, um, uh, you know, certificates and training, stay relevant. That's, that's make yourself job resilient, you know. 
And so that's the challenge though too, because there's still a very traditional mindset on most universities of, well, you know, we're gonna do the undergrad experience, they're gonna graduate. And then in 40 years, they want them to come write a big fat check to our university right. before they die and put their name on a building, right? Right. We need, no, we need to be engaging with them over their entire lives, not just at the beginning, at the back. No, I, I agree with you. And I, I noticed that in my career too was, is, you know, people go to college and then you just expect them to leave. And it's just like, but <laughs> isn't this the educational you know, arena that we're all supposed to come to? So, so somebody like, like your college right now is so nimble, you, you're probably not going to have the same type of challenges that a lot of the, a lot of the traditional type colleges are, will probably face, huh? Great foresight. And that's what I preach all the time to my peers. I, I go to a lot of the uh, national um, continuing ed conferences. Matter of fact, I'm going to Denver tomorrow for the rest of the week. There's a uh, public-private partnership uh, conference in Denver, P3, meaning it's more industry involvement with higher ed. I think schools that don't do that, they do it at their own peril. So I always try to stay on the leading edge of what are the new opportunities. And, and you're right. I feel, uh, I'm going to say this boldly, I, I really do feel recession and future-proof my college because we are very adaptable. We're nimble. I can sunset programs that are underperforming. I can start up new ones. Um, you know, I meet with industry leaders all the time and say, what is it that you're hearing or what is it that you need or where do you see the future of your particular industry? But like I said, I'm still developing more. Um, like I said, I think there's more room for public-private partnerships between higher ed because, as you know, state funding continues to be diminished. Over the years, uh, they're mostly called state assists now, not, not state supported. But a college like mine, after I pay the bills and you know, we, we, um, I, I provided our university for two new buildings, uh, $7 million based out of our coffers, out of our revenue. And, um, and again, we, we contribute what I call taxes to the university. So at the end of every year, we write a check to admin and finance and say, um, this is, this is you know, our tithe to the university for allowing us to do business here. And, um, but that's why I'm glad I'm on the cabinet because I say, look, don't, don't look at my college and others like us as the ATM of the, of the university. You just don't withdraw money, go to the cash machine and say, thank you very much. I said, look at us as an investment bank. Let's sit at the table, come down with new ideas, uh, whether it's a degree program, uh, a conference, uh, a new non-credit training opportunity, and let's develop that together. I'll incubate it, and then I can either keep it in my college or like a startup does, I'll spin it off to the mothership and let them run with it. And then it's incumbent upon me to go out and find new opportunities. So that's really what, what I love. And again, I, I confidently say, I, I think my college is future-proof as long as we remain nimble and attuned to what, what's, what's needed out there. Well, what do you think's been learned about online education since the pandemic? And how do you see this platform evolving for both uh, faculty and students? A lot. And as you and I talked briefly, you know, it, it, I think it was a blessing and a curse uh, online because a lot of us already had online programs uh, to begin with. And my college weathered it very well because most of my programs were already online. But as we saw a lot of faculty struggle in in the main campus and my college actually hired a number of instructional designers during the pandemic to assist the university with helping faculty transfer courses. I think it was seen as a, a quick fix and like, oh, wow, we can just move everything online. Well, that was a Herculean effort, not just here, but across the country. And 
what I think we're seeing is I think there are still a fair amount of students, and I would put myself in that category, that online learning isn't the best way for them to learn. A lot of folks need to sit in a classroom with their peers, with a professor at the head of the room, talking to them. And a lot of times, as you know, um, online courses are, are they're just basically glorified PowerPoints, which I've, I've really never liked. Now, Zoom helped a lot of that because courses could be Zoomed, but then you still saw disengagement. When I would, I would lean in and, and um, ask faculty to let me just be a fly on the wall, you'd see a lot of the videos clicked off. You know, the students, you could just see their name and you, you would have just, just a blank screen. So then you would have to ask, well, are they really there? Are, are they, is the computer on, but they're doing something else? Or are they just embarrassed, shy, afraid to engage? And so I think, uh, as you and I talked briefly as well, the learning loss that happened in the K through 12 system, uh, community colleges and at universities, we're, we're seeing that kind of work its way through the pipeline. And so online, it did help to go back to your question. Absolutely, it helped. But I don't, I think the jury's still out about how much uh, was lost during the pandemic, even though we were, most universities were able to pivot uh, online. You know, non-traditional students sometimes struggle at colleges and universities. What are you guys doing at your college to kind of work with that specific student population better? Wow. another It's almost like I, like you said, a softball, because that's another initiative that we're working on. You're absolutely right. Uh, our provost likes to call it providing a culture of care hmm. to that particular audience. So you're right. They need a whole host and suite of services to help them be successful, as you know, particularly if they didn't have parents or relatives that have been to university. So they don't know what that's like. Um, a lot of our folks are, are very poor. Um, some of them, I'm not making this up, Dave, there's been some cases of some of our students were living in their cars. Um, didn't have a place to stay. They don't have Wi-Fi at home. Our CIO was forward thinking and he's wired up all of our parking lots at the university with amped up Wi-Fi. So if a student can't get it at home and if they have a car, they can come out and sit in their car before class and spend hours or at the library, um, but have access to Wi-Fi, to have access to the internet. But we're also finding, you know, you need counseling services. You need not just advising support, you need career center support. So there's a higher um, need for the services that these types of students need. But I think at a university like ours, those are the things that we should be doing to help them be successful and um, you know, giving them a leg up and, and some help to do that. So yeah, there's a whole suite of services. Um, we have a program called Once a Toro, Always a Toro. Our mascot is a Toro, going to one of your points. And this is an initiative that was started in my college but that's now spun off into the broader university. So what we did was we went back and looked into our archives about why students were stopping out. Cause we noticed, you know, we lost, we're like, wow, we're down 1300 students this fall. Why aren't they coming back? What's happening here? And so we uh, hired an outside uh, consulting firm to help us. And we went through our alumni records and we found going back like 15 years, 19,000 students that had stopped out from Dominguez Hills. That's a lot of students. We thought, well, maybe 15 years is too far back. So let's look at a little bit closer. So we did like, like five to six years, five to seven years. So we came up with a list of 3000 students and we came up with a marketing campaign. And at the same time, we were building the infrastructure for this culture of care, as I mentioned. And we reached out to them and said, 
hey, you were once a Toro, you're always a Toro, we want you back. And then uh, we cherry picked about a dozen for a listening tour that we brought to my auditorium. And we, we had different stakeholders from the university sitting in talking to these students. And we had our um, consultants with us. And some of the stories, Dave, were heart-wrenching, as I said. Some of them said, I got a divorce. I lost my job. Um, I'm taking care of my aging parents. Uh, I sleep in my car. I had to drop out. I, I was in an abusive relationship with a spouse. I got a divorce. I, believe me, I wanted to come back, but I can't. I, I, don't, and, or I don't know how. Where do I start? And so from that, that's what we decided we needed to create a suite of services that, that help these folks. So I can proudly say that out of these 3,000 folks and based on the listening tour and getting a lot of buy-in from our university leadership, managers, staff level, faculty, we put out a call um, out of that 3,000. This fall alone, we had 380 students that came back in the fall that wow. had thought they would never come back. And the response we got from them was, I thought nobody cared. Um, and they said, I didn't know where to start. You know, because what happens, Dave, they say, look, I'm not a first time freshman. I'm not a transfer student. And I'm not a graduate student. Because our initial communications to them were, oh, you have to go to Cal State, apply and go and do the application process again. And they're like, I've already done that. So to, uh, to lower at least one administrative barrier, one of many, we came up with a re-engagement form that said, if you were a former student going back this far, fill out this form and we'll waive any application fee because it's not an application. We're re-engaging you to the campus. And we had a lot of faculty advisors and mentors and staff advisors help these folks. But again, out of that 3,000, um, it may not sound like a lot, but to us, it was a Herculean effort to get 382 students. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. To come back this fall. So we see an opportunity there to go back again and, and re-go through our uh, alumni records. And then even of the 3,000 we contacted to go back a second time and, re and try to rework with them. Because some said, look, I want to come back. I just can't come back in the fall. Maybe in the spring or maybe next fall, because I have to get so many things in order in my personal life uh, before I can come back. So we think we're onto something there. Um, and um, again, but we have to build in the suite of services because if they leave a second time because of something we did as a university and didn't provide some support for them, they really will never come back. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's a fun question I like to ask. If you had any extra budget money right now, so you have, um, you pick the number. So you're getting some extra budget money right now with no strings attached at all. How would you spend it? Well, that's a great question. Um, I would share, I would look at three or four and I have, I would call, I call them opportunity hires, new positions within my college that maybe we don't currently have, you know, maybe we don't need another registration associate. Maybe we don't need another, uh, front desk receptionist. Maybe I don't need another IT support person. What are something creative? What types of positions could I create? So I'm looking at like a, uh, a, a couple of program developers to help us help me develop new programs with our academic partners. I'm looking at a couple of graduate recruiters. When I worked in the private uh, university setting, that's kind of, we have some graduate uh, advisors on campus, but I want folks that help go out and recruit graduate re students only to bring them to our program. Uh, I, need, I have a senior budget officer, but I need another like a budget support uh, person. And, uh, and then I would invest in new programs. So I do opportunity hires, 
and then throw some money at some new uh, at some new programs and test them out. Oh, good. Well, here's my last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Oh, man, I do. There's one called, um, I just blanked on it because I met the guy the other day. It's called The New You, and that's the U is for university. It's a recent mm. one. It's, it's a really good book. And then, believe it or not, I pulled off the shelf. It's an oldie but a goodie because of all the changes with the pandemic and people wanting to go back to the way they were. Was you remember that little primer was called uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, a, it's a short book. And I pulled that out and I thought, man, that thing is still relevant today. <laughs> you, can, you still have some folks that have yeah. the blinders on and say, I just want to yeah. go back to the way it was. And yeah. I want to do the same thing I did. Um, but those are the two. But I did read recently called The New You. And the guy talks about uh, digital badging, credentials, uh, the 60 year curriculum. Um, you know, lifelong learning. So those are the two that I would, I would recommend. Well, Kim, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Dave, I can't thank you enough. It was, uh, it's almost like a, um, um, a counseling session. I felt like a therapeutic moment to, after a day long of meetings to have a nice conversation about what we do and how, how much fun I really have. And it makes me really enjoy this. So I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you for inviting me. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.